Walt Disney World, a place where fantasies come true. Today, the Magic Kingdom will turn a dream into real life for Indy Speedway owner Tony George. Walt Disney World and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway proudly announced the first event of the new Indy Racing League. For years, Tony envisioned a new series of racing, one with greater access for more teams, more affordable racing in the American style on oval tracks. Today, after years of planning, it's reality. The Indy Racing League. Great names from the world of racing are here, like Indy 500 pole sitter Scott Brayton or Indy track record holder Roberto Guerrero. No one has ever been faster at the Speedway. And the man who won the fastest Indy 500 ever, Ari Leyendijk. Along with the new breed, tutored now by the veterans, the stars of tomorrow, already champions in their own form of the sport. But the racing challenge is unchanged. Driver and machine against the track. The road to Indy takes its toll. There's a new attraction at Walt Disney World, one only the bravest will try. There will be thrills for those involved and for everyone watching from the outside. So get on board at the Indy 200 at Walt Disney World. The Indy Racing League is in the land where dreams come true for the Indy 200 at Walt Disney World. Today is the start of the road to the 80th running of the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Hello and welcome. I'm Paul Page, and this is the start of a great year in motorsports for us here at ABC. We've got so much to show you. Consider the Indy cars. Well, this year they will race in separate series. There'll be the IndyCar World Series, which you're familiar with, and the new Indy Racing League. And we'll have coverage of both right here on ABC Sports. Now, what is the Indy Racing League? Well, the IRL, as it is called, is a concept originated by the president of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, Tony George. He envisions an affordable American oval track series, a, a league of tracks hosting the Indy cars. The rules for the construction of the cars, exactly like they were for last year's Indianapolis 500. And the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is very definitely a part of the league. This year, they have reserved up to 25 of the 33 starting positions in the race for IRL members, provided, of course, that they meet a yet-to-be-announced minimum speed requirement. And, of course, the 20 cars that have qualified for today's race have already crossed the first bridge on the road to the Indianapolis 500-mile race. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, buckle up, race fans. It's uh, time to go racing. How you doing? It's uh, Tim Hanlon, and it's Good Seats Still Available, the curious little podcast that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Thanks for coming on by. And it's uh, we're getting in the uh, racing spirit. Obviously, the uh, Memorial Day weekend, if you're listening to this uh, live or in pattern uh, as we record this and, and drop this uh, a little before Memorial Day weekend, which is obviously the big race day uh, for even sort of the uh, casual race fan, uh, whether it be the uh, Coca-Cola, formerly known as World 600 in the NASCAR realm, if it's uh, uh, the Monaco Grand Prix, uh, which usually starts the festivities. And of course, the crown jewel in the midst of all of that. 
which is the basis for our conversation this week. The Indianapolis 500. No, that's no longer. Uh, well, that's not part of the conversation. It is part of the conversation. Let's let's get that straight. Uh, that's not defunct by any stretch of the imagination. It still continues to be uh, one of the greatest sporting spectacles, not just in racing, but in sports generally in the United States. Uh, but it is the basis for uh, our conversation this week with John Oriovitz, uh, who has authored a, a tremendous book just coming out uh, this week. It's called Indie Split, uh, and that is subtitled The Big Money Battle That Nearly Destroyed Indie Racing. And Indie, of course, synonymous with, with racing, in particular the open-wheeled version uh, of such. And that clip that you heard at the outset of our uh, our recording this week uh, is kind of sort of a, a, the the highest uh, uh, craziness of what has become, and still only recently now, uh, maybe uh, arguably has uh, uh, come together after a long uh, number of years, sort of uh, uh, split uh, in this open car uh, racing uh, circuit known as IndyCar. Um, that came from uh, the 1996 debut of something called the Indy Racing League in January of 1996. That's Paul Page at the microphone uh, and being broadcast live and exclusive on ABC Sports from Walt Disney World, who created literally a, a, a racetrack uh, just in time for the debut of this thing called the Indy Racing League, uh, which is kind of the sort of midpoint of our story this week with John Oriovitz. Um, it's a story of the Indianapolis 500 for sure, uh, and the success and the desire to even greater success uh, for uh, open-wheeled racing. 1979, bit of a prelude, when CART, championship uh, auto uh, racing teams, uh, as I think is what that stood for, is the first break uh, that sort of uh, kind of spilled over into to greater uh, splits and schisms over time. Uh, CART, as, as the uh, uh, acronym is known, essentially was uh, a beginning response to uh, the Indy 500, uh, which was overseen uh, by this thing called USAC, United States Automobile Club, and a desire by teams who are spending tons of money in terms of perfecting and uh, uh, and trying to better monetize, uh, CART was uh, in essence a the beginnings of a breakaway from the overlords, if you will, of USAC and the Indy 500. Uh, obviously, a, a a significant race in all of uh, in all of racing, but CART recognizing uh, that uh, there was uh, plenty of money and uh, professionalism uh, to come beyond just that once a year spectacle of the Indy 500. And that sort of sets in tone, in motion, if you will, uh, a uh, an ongoing series of um, of events that uh, around, say, 1992, CART uh, rebrands itself as IndyCar, right, using that name and trying to leverage. And then to the point where, at the time, Tony George, who uh, inherited and became the owner and operator of the uh, Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the Indianapolis 500 uh, essentially threw down the gauntlet uh, to the cart uh, folks and said, look, if you want the Indy 500 as part of your mix, uh, you got to uh, abide by my desires and rules. 
uh, and a, a a thought process that George had to essentially uh, make the Indianapolis 500 the crown jewel of what he felt was a more pure and American-born version of open car, open wheel racing. Uh, and that is sort of around uh, uh, oval tracks and a more cost-efficient model that uh, arguably could prevent being overtaken by fancier European uh, teams and uh, and bigger um, permutations, I guess, of of that uh, of that circuit. And thus was born uh, in earnest in 1996 this thing called the Indy Racing League, which was Tony George's, I don't know, middle finger or alternative or pure form of open wheel racing that used the big leverage point, which was the Indianapolis 500. And crazily, in 1996, later after this uh, initial uh, IRL race at Walt Disney World, the uh, Disney, I guess it was called the Disney 200, uh, on Memorial Day in 1996, this split literally created a competing set of races. People may not remember that in 1996, the Indianapolis 500, this was the first year of the Tony George-led IRL in the Racing League. And there was essentially, some call it a boycott, some call it a lockout, but all of the cart teams, having having uh, sort of had a tenuous relationship by still being able to race, the best teams, frankly, uh, in the world in open wheel racing were in the cart uh, circuit, uh, were now essentially banished from the Indianapolis 500. Not a full banishment. It was basically a, a far more limited number uh, of slots uh, to qualify for it. But that's what Tony George did. He used the Indy 500 as the ultimate race of this fledgling Indian, uh, Indy Racing League in 1996. And what you had on Memorial Day was two competing events. The kart teams, uh, by all uh, accounts, the significant uh, talent in open wheel racing, created this thing called the US 500 play at the Michigan International Speedway. And it was literally uh, run uh, almost in direct competition with the Indy 500 on ABC, which was essentially the place where the Indy Racing League folks, uh, far lesser uh, quality um, and tenured uh, talent, uh, would race. And that's just how crazy it got. Um, and that just sort of begot even more and more uh, splits and uh, and division as the years went on. Cart essentially uh, kind of lost out to uh, television money uh, as the IRL essentially locked in, courtesy of, of Tony George and, and the Indianapolis 500 uh, ABC Sports coverage. And that kind of started to dry up some of Cart's uh, original um, desires uh, to to make more money on a on a on a circuit, and it, it's a long and winding road, and I, I, I'm not even doing it justice. And, and you will be fascinated by it. But I, to the outside observer, the the, the sort of non sort of uh, uh, gearhead race fan type, like myself, frankly, uh, it's just it's incredible to think that uh, open wheel racing, which in all of its uh, uh, drama and and uh, uh, horsepower. Um, essentially had has been rendered uh, almost as an afterthought uh, because of this longtime split that only now is starting to come back together in the fact that Roger Penske uh, and uh, and his management team has 
uh, effectively bought uh, the remnants of all of this and uh, is now, frankly, in a position uh, to maybe bring some of this stuff back uh, into sort of a a harmonious uh, future going forward for open wheel racing as the terms IndyCar and the Indy Racing League and CART and all those things are now actually sort of harmonized and and sort of sitting under one roof. It's a it's a it's a crazy story of bankruptcies and, and assets and all that kind of stuff. But I, I assure you that even if you don't consider yourself a race fan, you're going to find this conversation with John Orev. It's fascinating and interesting. I'm sure you remember CART. I'm sure you may remember some of these competing uh, races and not really being sure whether it was in the racing league or part of cart or what cart then sort of evolved into becoming uh, champ cars and all this kind of stuff. You just kind of thought, well, this is open wheel racing. What, what, what's with two leagues? I mean, there's barely enough talent to support one league, let alone two. Um, but that's all part of the story. And it's fascinating uh, to its core. And that's our conversation coming up in just a few moments with John Orivitz, again, the author of the great, I highly encourage this book in your library, even if you don't consider yourself a race fan, it's it's fascinating for all of its drama called Indie Split. Again, the big money battle that nearly destroyed indie racing. And we'll see going forward. Certainly we see NASCAR waning in terms of television ratings. We've got a whole bunch of other sort of things sort of um, uh, sort of popping up and stuff. So uh, it's uh, it's going to be interesting to watch sort of does open wheel racing uh, make a, a bigger uh, sort of comeback, so to speak, uh, in the midst of uh, what we sort of see in sports generally and declining ratings and stuff. Uh, it'll be uh, certainly fascinating to watch. And keep in mind, this is sort of all part of the history, the background, the backstory of uh, your enjoyment of the Indy 500 this upcoming weekend. Uh, and uh, I assure you this will be a, a helpful uh, backgrounder for you as you get ready and set to watch uh, that race this year. Before we get to our conversation with John, a, a quick uh, and uh, thankful uh, promotional uh, tip of the uh, of the lug nuts, shall we say, <laughs> to our pals at OldSchoolShirts.com. P.F. Wilson and his uh, his gang, uh, OldSchoolShirts.com. And we've got a promo code, of course, for you there. It's Good Seats, one word, Good Seats. 10% off all of your purchases when you go to there early and often at OldSchoolShirts.com. And why why the tie-in this week? Well, look, they've, they, they do a great job of categorizing all these great shirts that they have, uh, affordably priced, priced, excuse me, uh, well-crafted, and you can search by sports, by leagues. Uh, there's a collections uh, section there of all kinds of cool sort of curations, but also by cities. And if you want to just uh, uh, search up Indianapolis, uh, which seems appropriate for this episode, since the Indianapolis 500 and the Indianapolis Motor Speedway is such a central part of it, uh, why not uh, uh, sort of uh, uh, get in the spirit? Uh, you could get the Zygies barbecue shirt. You remember Zygies or Ziggy's? Uh, Z-I-E-G-Y apostrophe S. I'm not from Indianapolis, but apparently people who grew up there remember that uh, uh, long uh, standing and now uh, sadly no longer with us uh, barbecue joint. Um, perhaps you may remember um, Hook's Drug Stores, which were a big thing back in the day before they got kind of bought out by uh, what is now CVS. Uh, how about the Atlas supermarket? Yeah. Atlas supermarket, a big deal, uh, part of the Indianapolis, um, landscape. And a fun fact you may remember, or maybe not remember it's where TV, uh, TV's David Letterman worked as a stock boy in the 1960s while attending high school, uh, before sort of, uh, stumbling into, 
uh, a, uh, a broadcasting career uh, that uh, became uh, uh, obviously a, uh, quite the sensation. And uh, for people of me and my generation, uh, just a, a, a clarion uh, sound uh, of comedy uh, in the 1980s and, and, and onwards. Um, let's see. You might remember a uh, Geist's Cocktail Cove uh, in the metropolitan area. All those places are remembered. Al Green's famous food, his drive-in restaurants, uh, which uh, or restaurant, uh, and it wasn't that Al Green, but uh, that was also uh, sort of a uh, in the past of of Indianapolis's uh, heritage and stuff. And there's even an ATA Airlines, American Trans Air, is what it stood for. ATA, uh, you're on vacation. Remember that slogan. Uh, you may you may remember or may lament, frankly, ATA and uh, before it got sold itself to Southwest Airlines and ATA, obviously, sort of the beginnings, I think, of what has become now a mainstream sort of budget airline approach to uh, to travel uh, the frontier airlines is of the world. Um, we can debate how whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, but all of those things, all those shirts and many, many more, not just for Indianapolis, but all kinds of cities and stuff. Uh, cultural uh, remembrances in t-shirt form can be found at oldschoolshirts.com. Again, promo code for you there is good seats. Make sure you use that promo code early and often and you get 10% off all of those purchases. Thanks to PF Wilson and our friends at oldschoolshirts.com. All right, let's get into racing, shall we? It's John Orivitz. We talk about the Indy split. It's not just one split. It's a lot of sort of uh, fissures along the way. Uh, from the yeah, 1980s through, frankly, until very recently. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, open wheel racing, indie style uh, appropriate, don't you think, for the Indy 500 coming up this week. Here's our conversation we had with John just a couple of days ago. Please, tremendously, as always, enjoy. When, when I was a little kid, I was a car enthusiast, and I love VW Beetles, and, and my parents were grad students and English professors, and their reaction to me liking cars was to buy me a subscription to Road and Track magazine. And at about the same time that that happened, we moved from Pennsylvania to Indiana, and almost every kid in Indiana during their elementary school career goes on a field trip to the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So I did that, and this... You know, my interest in cars and my subscription to road and track and going to the Speedway. And then in the September 1975 issue, there was a picture of Nicky Lauda and a Ferrari Formula One car that really captivated me. And there was a, a series of pictures of Tom Sneva wrecking in the 1975 Indy 500, which wrecks were never my thing, but it was pretty spectacular to see anyway. But there was extensive, extensive coverage of the Indy 500, and it all kind of coalesced at that moment. I was 10 years old, 11 years old at that point in time. And my parents were, like I said, they were English professors. They were not car people, but they saw that I loved cars and I was getting interested in racing mainly through Formula One. And so they said, if, if they had any friends that were going to the Speedway, they said, well, hey, why don't you take the punk along? And so I started going to the track. I was there for the day that Janet Guthrie qualified in 1977. My first Indy 500 was 1978. And just at about that time, the IndyCar racing world kind of exploded with the original split between the United States Auto Club and a new group called Championship Auto Racing Teams that was spearheaded by Roger Penske, Dan Gurney, and Pat Patrick. And the kart group wanted to take over the commercial aspects of IndyCar racing uh, while allowing USAC to maintain the technical aspects in, a, in an agreement that 
Bernie Ecclestone was kind of pioneering in Formula One at the same time. And USAC fought them. And um, so as a result, one of the one of the defining themes of IndyCar racing at this period in the late 70s and the early 80s, when I was getting interested in it, was this conflict between the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the United States Auto Club and the participants uh, in the Indy 500 or in IndyCar racing as a whole. And what eventually happened is, is that CART took over the organization of IndyCar racing everywhere outside of Indianapolis. The Indy 500 remained under control of USAC. And for 15 years, they kind of had this uneasy coexistence. And during that 15 years, I went from being a little kid fan to being actually a really serious racing fan who traveled to Milwaukee and Toronto and Nazareth and Long Beach, uh, Road America, Cleveland for, for IndyCar races. I loved it. And uh, my parents, without giving me a lot of direct uh, information of how to do it, they suggested, well, you should be a, an IndyCar racing journalist. And eventually, by 1993, I made it happen. And since 1993, I've been professionally involved in the sport, either as a writer for publications like National Speed Sport News or ESPN.com or Racer Magazine. Uh, I did a period of public relations work for a team in the kart series known as PacWest Racing. And I've had this lifelong perspective about IndyCar racing over the last 40 to 45 years where I watched it as a fan grow in the kart era into a worldwide phenomenon where it was really successful as a, as a series of 15 or 20 races nationally and not just the Indy 500 and a couple of other tracks thrown on. And then I saw from 1996 onward, while I was a member of the community, I saw the management of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, uh, led by Tony George, the grandson of Tony Holman, who bought the Speedway in 1945. They created what I perceived as an unnecessary conflict. Um, they went into competition with the kart series, and as a result, there were two competing IndyCar series from 1996 to 2008. It created confusion, animosity, unhappiness among the fan base, the sponsor base, uh, just about everybody. And what it resulted in was IndyCar racing pretty much falling off the map while NASCAR became a national phenomenon. And now that uh, IndyCar racing's split was finally resolved in 2008, um, it took until 2020, basically, for the, for the, for the real... Uh, the fallout of the split to shake out. I mean, for the last 12 years, there's been one unified IndyCar series, and it's kind of held steady at its small place in the, in the overall marketplace. But in 2020, uh, the Holman family sold the Speedway and the IndyCar series to Roger Penske, the well-known businessman and race car owner. And I think that's what finally provided closure to this topic of the split. And if you want to talk about a split in IndyCar racing, it really occurred from from the late 70s until uh, until about 10 years ago. And so to finally really have symbolic closure to it, even though the, you know technically the split ended in 2008, I don't think there was really a symbolic closure to it until the Holman family divested themselves of the Speedway. And Mr. Penske, I think everyone would agree, is the, he's the right guy to, to, uh, to own the sport and lead the sport into the future. He's, he's got an unmatched record in Indianapolis and in auto racing and business as a whole. He gives credibility to the sport. He's remodeled and refurbished the Speedway in a fantastic way. And it's, it's kind of a happy accident that my book came out right now because the focal point of the split was the 
the start of the cart IRL war in, two, in, in 1996. And in May 1996, they actually had a cart actually staged a competing race against the Indianapolis 500 called the U.S. 500. And that, that, that everybody kind of remembers that as a focal point of the split where they literally came head to head on that day with dueling 500 mile races and neither of them came out of it looking super great. But um, yeah, the, I think I think that was that was the height of the craziness. Right. I, in some respects. Well, uh, and, and, and it's 25 years ago right now. And, and it's just a happy coincidence that that uh, a project that I'm working on, I, I say that I've worked on it for four years, but it's more more like 40 years. Uh, that it happens to be coming out at a milestone anniversary of it, and and the reaction to it's been pretty astounding. Well, let, we'll get. We'll, I want to get to that future part, obviously, near the end, the end of our, our chat. But let's let's just rewind a little bit, especially for those who are kind of uninitiated. Um, the the a lot of this story, right? And I think the late seventies. It's interesting because that's when, as a kid, you became a fan. But also, this is around the time all of this stuff was kind of really sort of percolating to a boil. Um, and and I, I guess I, I'm really curious in your answer to this question, sort of when did you kind of start to really recognize that there were other issues a little bit more, I don't know, uh, adult-like, if you will, that were behind the scenes of your fandom? Um, th- this all is predicated on this crown jewel that is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and its preeminent race that's arguably, you know, one of the small handful of of all american sporting events from from time and memoriam uh, the indianapolis 500 um maybe a, just a minute or two if it's possible to kind of put the indy 500 and indianapolis motor speedway kind of in its sort of setting here because the rest of this story doesn't play out with this without sort of this um shall we say a, a vaunted status of of both of those well, the the Indianapolis Motor Speedway was built between it was it was basically built in 1909. And the first Indy 500 was hosted in 1911. The original owners sold the track after 15 years or so to Eddie Rickenbacker, the World War One hero, and Rickenbacker owned the track until World War Two. World War Two shut down the track. Uh, the Indy 500 wasn't held from the years 1942 to 45, and the track was. Uh, it was not maintained during the war. They offered it up to the, to the war effort, uh, but the government declined. And it wasn't until 1944, 1945 that a guy called Wilbur Shaw, who won the Indy 500 three times, mounted or mounted an effort to save it. And he's the guy that found Tony, Tony Holman and Tony Holman, who was a, uh, from a grocer family, a wholesale grocer family from Terre Haute, Indiana bought the Speedway in 1945, and there was real question whether the Indy 500 would bounce back. But with Shaw and Holman, from 1946 onward, uh, the Indy 500, it really became a phenomenon. Um, You know, people would, uh, to participate or even to be fans, people would literally take the entire month of May off. It was a unique event because the, the events were staged over the course of the entire month of May, which is, you know, highly unusual now. But it, it was the center of the sports world's attention uh, at its peak in, in the 1960s, I would say. Um, you know, they and, really, and, you, you've and, got and, to credit and, to and, and, and Why, but why though? Why, why like Indy, like of all, of all places and all things? I mean, Daytona obviously wasn't kind of really a thing until uh, arguably in the 
sort of mid to late 50s. And even that was sort of on sand and beaches and moonshine connections and all that kind of stuff. But the, but the indie was almost kind of like the sort of central focal point of auto racing overall in this country. It was kind of like the sort of the grand dame of, of you know, speed uh, and the, the sort of circling, I guess, of, quote unquote, this sport at that time. No. Well, it did a really good job of building their tradition um, and and somehow, whether it's hyping or promoting or whatever the word is, I mean, the world was a lot different in the 1930s or the 1950s than it is now. But somehow a lot of these traditions that started in Indianapolis, the Borg Warner Trophy and drinking milk in Victory Lane and, and the fact that it was a constant presence on Memorial Day weekend for the last 110 years, it... it it, it, I don't think it really developed into this iconic status until the Holman era, but, but it did. And it's, you know, obviously the, the 500, it's recognized worldwide and everything. And it was, it, it's kind of hard to explain just how big it got. I mean, they sold the place out on, on race day from the fifties until the nineties, they would get 300,000 people or, or excess in there. And, and when race tickets became harder to get, suddenly qualifying was the big ticket. And, and in the 60s and the 70s, and honestly, all the way up until the early 90s, you, you had Tom Carnegie with it's a new track record. And that was a big part of being there for qualifying. And they pulled 200,000 people in there just for poll day. It was, it was astounding. And, and for young people, it was a rite of passage to go out and party at the speedway and, and, you know, get your fried chicken and your beer and have a good time with your friends. And, and, and what it kind of really developed into is the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It, it's developed place fans that are, are more than race fans. They're into the Speedway. They're into the 500. They pay attention to that. They go out to practice. They get drunk on carb day. But they don't really pay attention to IndyCar racing as a whole, to Long Beach, to, to, uh, to the other races, to St. Pete. And that's the crux of, of the split that started in the seventies is the fact that the participants needed the sport to be just, it needed to be a 12 month a year sport and not a one month a year phenomenon. It needed to be a business for them. Yeah. And I guess this, this, the, the, to the casual fan, right. And this, this sort of right of, uh, of, uh, of, um, of history, you know, the Memorial day and stuff. I think every, every uh, sports fan, just generally of, of multiple generations, right. It's just sort of like an automatic, right. Memorial day is you constantly, know that the Indy 500 is going to be happening and and it is a once in a year kind of thing right to the and that's where sort of that gigantic tent of both people at the track as well as just on television the television audiences which I don't want to get at the sidetrack here but the, the fact that it was tape delayed which is just today is just until know, 1986 which phenomenal. is phenomenal it's hard to believe but but I mean I guess the point is that there is that but you're you're hinting at right these these drivers just don't come out of the woodwork once a year just to compete in this big spectacle right there's there's a season and there's there's competition and there's it's uh, it's lost on probably I would fair, venture to say the vast majority of folks who are paying attention to this thing every year. Well, it is. And, and sometimes it's hard, Tim, for me to just kind of to understand where it really all stands, because I'm so much in the bubble. I mean, I'm, I'm 56 years old. And from the time I was 10 or 11, I paid hard, serious attention to IndyCar racing. I studied it and, and living in, in Indiana for the first 10 years and in greater Indianapolis since the mid eighties, it is, 
they do make it a 365-day-a-year sport in Indianapolis just because of the promotional effort of the Speedway. I'm but sure, I'm sure it, it's inescapable, it, right? It doesn't get that treatment in the rest of the country. And so I'm kind of in this bubble where, yeah, it's normal, and IndyCar racing is a big sport and everything. And and it, it really was until the, the card IRL split, and then, then the bottom kind of fell out, and I don't think they really understand that locally here. Well, let, let's let's talk about the '70s then. Obviously, that's when you were starting to uh, the catnip really was starting to to kick in for you. Um, but uh, in the the latter part of the decade, right? This was, I, I guess, maybe set the table a little bit because clearly Indy was a, a national mega event. It had a, a decades of uh, of heritage. Obviously, a very popular televised sport, albeit. Uh, tape delay, but you know, in some respects, you have to think about this, you young whippersnappers out there. I mean, the the, the fact that it was tape delayed to be played in prime time, yeah, of course, it's a little odd because you know, if you're not there live, or or you know, you, you could somehow find out might be how the how the race was going. Always sort of a temptation, a little harder, obviously, in in back in the day. But but I think a testament to the fact just how gigantic this event was that it would be back in the seventies. In prime time, right, which is a big deal back then when you only had three major networks, right? So the gargantuan audiences, which you know today's today's kids don't fr- frankly understand, but that's I think that's the, the testament uh, to the fact that just how gigantic this event was, right? No, I mean back in the day, it was probably the Super Bowl um, in terms of sports broadcasts on an annual basis, and and I'm talking in the '60s and '70s here. Uh, I mean, once the, once the Super Bowl and the NFL really started to catch on, auto racing as a whole lost some of its luster. What are the seeds of the of seventy eight seventy nine when sort of I guess the first sort of fissure starts to starts to happen? I mean, you mentioned USAC and you mentioned CART. Maybe right. a little bit explanatory there for our audience who may not know the difference between those two acronyms. Well, the the big transformation took place in the sixties. Um, and it happened in Formula One racing before it happened in IndyCar racing, and that was there was a transition from front-engine cars to rear-engine cars. Uh, the rear-engine cars were lighter; they handled better. Um, at Indianapolis, there, it was a cultural shift because the rear-engine cars were introduced by English constructors, Cooper, Lotus, and let's be honest, there was just some foreigner. Uh, there was resentment. Um, there, there was resentment from the old drivers you're you're hinting at that, that, that was sort of international, you know, it was the, it was the limeys. It was the English that brought over these rear engine cars and they brought over Jim Clark and Jack, Jack Brabham and Jackie Stewart and Graham Hill. And, and, uh, it, it created a resentment among the old guard in the sixties in the United States auto club, which is the group that sanctioned the Indy 500 and the entire series. And the United States Auto Club itself was a product of Tony Holman. Uh, the AAA, the, the auto club as we know it, sanctioned auto racing up until 1955, and there were some deaths, and they got out of the sport. And USAC and the Speedway were were linked hand-in-hand hand from 1956 onwards. And the problem was is that the Indy 500 grew massively in the 60s, but the, the series, USAC, their management of the series, they didn't really know what to do with it. They had road races. They still had dirt races on ovals on the schedule. There were a couple of years in the late 60s where, 60s where the Pikes Peak Hill Climb was part of the IndyCar schedule or the, the championship, USAC championship car schedule as it was known then. And then in 1971, USAC 
took all the dirt races. They separated the dirt races away from IndyCar racing, which I think was a smart move. Uh, there, there was no linkage or connection between the two. It was the same time that NASCAR took dig dirt races off their top cup series schedule. So there was an attempt to kind of modernize the sport in the 70s, but USAC's response to doing that was just running these Indy cars on paved ovals. And it ended up being, the series ended up declining from 25, 28 races in the late 60s down to 10 or 12 races in the early 70s, all on paved ovals. And it created this situation that we touched on earlier where the competitors were changing. The cars were getting faster. The cars were getting more sophisticated. They were influenced by Formula One technology. They needed to have IndyCar racing be a year-round uh, sustaining business for them instead of just uh, being wealthy sportsmen who entered cars in the Indy 500 and, and were happy with their $250,000 of winnings. That's the genesis of, of the split in 1979 where a group of team owners – uh, motivated by Dan Gurney uh, and organized by Pat Patrick and Roger Penske, formed a group called Championship Auto Racing Teams. They formed it as an owner group, and what they wanted to do was have a greater say in the commercial aspect of the sport. They had seen what a guy called Bernie Ecclestone had done in Formula One, where he had taken the team owners and he banded them together, and they took over the commercial rights. They left the technical rights or the actual sanction of the series to the FIA, but suddenly the team owners were able to make money because they took over the commercial rights, mainly in selling the television to international countries around the world. And Formula One was a very international series. Gurney wanted to try to do that with CART. And that was CART's sole hope at the beginning was to simply have a greater say in the commercial rights so that they could be more liquid in terms of running their business of running in these races that they wanted USAC to still sanction. Yeah. And is, and is that because the, the USAC was, was sort of coming off of being sort of this all encompassing kind of a, a sanctioning body and, and maybe didn't have sort of that sort of, I guess, maybe even pre-modern sensibility of well, uh, they, at least demarcating different kinds of racing and or maximizing the revenues from that, from those. You know, USAC, they sanctioned the Champ Car Series, which was what we know as IndyCars now. They had sprint car racing. They had midget racing. There was a USAC Stock Car Series that operated up through the 80s that was in many ways probably the level of the NASCAR Bush Series or Xfinity Series as we know it now. Not quite at the level of the Grand National or Cup Series, but still a, a significant stock car series. So, yeah, they, they had their oars in a lot of ponds, and that was the concern of the IndyCar owners is that they were not giving the focus on the flagship which was IndyCar racing. And uh, as a result, they were unable to make a living doing it. Interesting. So it also, it, it, it sounds like there's a bit of, uh, look, in order to make this worth our professional and business-oriented uh, time and effort, we need, to, we, need to, we need to make this more of a, an on, you know, an, a going concern beyond sort of this once in a while or once every year event or, or, even expanding maybe from a handful or 10 events to something that's a little bit more, shall we say, year-long sustainable. They needed more races. They needed more successful races, and they needed them to be uh, on television and in the media. Right, which which in television terms, right, is inventory and advertising exposure and, and, and aligning with marketing marketers' needs to, to uh, across the entire calendar year, et cetera. Yep. So – you know, CART wanted to try to take over some of the commercial aspects. USAC resisted, and as a result, they got into a legal fight in which USAC tried to prevent several of the CART teams from even participating in the 1979 Indy 500. And the key, the key point to, to differentiate 
these the split in 1979 and the split in 1996 is that in 1979 the cart teams always intended to participate in the Indy 500 whereas in 1996 the cart teams very defiantly decided to go their own way that's interesting. So, so let's let, give us a sense then of this lead-up because obviously the the major or the big sort of very uh, garish split became very evident in in the in the nineties. But can you describe a little bit of sort of what the I guess the vast majority of the eighties was was like? Because it seems like this was this sort of ongoing and building uh, percolating tension between I guess the professional desires of the owners. Uh, and the, I don't know, the ability sliding into inability of the heritaged uh, overseer of at least the Indy 500 to keep control and or maintain it in some semblance of uh, uh, of manner where everybody can sort of get, get along. It seems like that just was a building decade of, uh, was it distrust or uh, differing uh, directions of, of where they thought that Indy 500 and the broader Indy car racing could go? The Speedway always was hand in hand with USAC. It, the Speedway formed USAC. It, you know, they you can talk about they tried to create a separation of church and state, but it was never there. And so, you know, there was there was a brief reconciliation in 1980 where they tried to work together, and then the Speedway broke away again. And so, throughout the 80s, what you had was. USAC running the Indy 500, and this was from 1981 to 1995, you had USAC running the Indy 500, and you had CART running the rest of the IndyCar schedule. And during that time, from 1981 to 1995, the series went from being eight or ten kind of ragtag races at places like Trenton and Texas World Speedway to CART maintained some of the historic venues like Milwaukee and Michigan and the like, but they added road courses like Mid-Ohio and Road America. They added street courses like Long Beach. They, the series gained much more of an international flavor. It wasn't intentional. It's just the way it developed. There was changes in racing. The the SCCA Can-Am series failed. That was a road racing series, and as a result, a lot of tracks and teams and drivers came looking to IndyCar racing in the early 80s. And it, it all coalesced in this transformation of IndyCar racing into a very versatile and international series that had a great combination in its heyday. And this is, I'm talking about the card era here. It had a great combination of road racing and ovals. It had a great race combination of American drivers, you had this core group of Americans uh, that had been around since the 60s. You had Mario Andretti, you had Al Unser, you had Gordon Johncock, Johnny Rutherford, uh, more recent guys, Rick Mears, Danny Sullivan. And then you brought into that mix people like Emerson Fittipaldi and Teo Fabi and ultimately Nigel Mansell. And IndyCar racing outside of Indianapolis went from being dead to being a real thing. It was a worldwide success, the kart series was. And the problem was is that the Indianapolis Motor Speedway didn't respect kart for building IndyCar racing outside of Indianapolis. And kart 
the team owners, they didn't respect the Speedway just because they viewed them as, as you know, being part of USAC and, and, and kind of a tradition of bumbling incompetence there. And on top of that, you know, Tony Holman died in 1977. There was no direct descendant for him. And in 1990, they handed the keys to the Speedway and, and the Holman kingdom to Tony George when he was 30 years old. And he made an effort to try to, some say, would, would say take over cart. But um, anyway, the, if, if the Speedway didn't res- respect what cart did to build the sport in the 80s and 90s, the cart team owners certainly didn't represent Tony George as the mouthpiece of the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. Yeah, to the, to the outside, uh, uh, you know, uh, fan, right? That, that's 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 fascinating because I think that's lost on a ton of people, right? I think the the casual fan, right, sees the Indy Five Hundred as sort of the the pinnacle and the the ultimate, and um, and here's Cart basically creating, um, you know, a, a series based off of that, shall we say, that starting point, right? And and arguably, there's a heritage there, right, that has to be. And you've got you've got Cart negotiating with a third generation owner, um, you know, a a thirty year old guy who I think the general consensus was wasn't. Tony's a smart guy; he's very intelligent. You can tell just by by reading a transcript of him or or listening to him talk. But he's not a great public speaker, and and you know, certainly in nineteen ninety or nineteen ninety one or two, he he wasn't a viewed as especially seasoned and the cart team guys, you know, they, they had this young guy come in and, and try to take them over and, and put his foot down and, and say that, you know, we're in charge here like Al Haig did in the Reagan white house. And, and, uh, it didn't go over very well with guys like Roger Penske and Carl Haas and Pat Patrick. Even, even though the racing and, and uh, was now exposing drivers and audiences to different forms of 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 competition, right? Where these these elegant machines are were, were shown to be versatile, right? It's not just going around and around in circles, but on road courses and uh, you know and and uh, in in streets and all that kind of stuff. I mean, arguably, that seems like to the outsider, right, that this would be an evolution of the sport that that would you know Indy should have perhaps been embracing, right? Because Without Indy, there isn't even the name, let alone sort of, you know, the, the, the ability to have this kind of sort of now year-long sort of uh, viable and vibrant vibrant circuit. Well, the argument that broke out in the 90s that Tony George created was that the kart series was not American enough. It didn't have enough American drivers. It didn't have American manufacturers, even though Chevrolet was a participating engine manufacturer at the time. Because why? It was drifting away from, shall we call it, the all-American Indianapolis sort of roots of this thing? Well, there was there was a disconnect from... Tony George wanted to bring American dirt track drivers back into it because that's what USAC stood for, and that's what USAC still stands for here in the 2020s. And what I don't think... Tony or anybody really understood is that there's been a disconnect between that type of grassroots USAC racing and IndyCar racing, honestly, since the rear engine cars came in the 60s. USAC, nobody ever really put a serious effort into building rear engine cars for sprint car racing or midget racing. And when somebody did, Tom Sneva won some races in 1973 or 74, they banned it. 
and you can look at the history of IndyCar racing, and there's this group of stars that came out in the 60s. It was Alan Bobby Unser and A.J. Foyt and Mario Andretti and Gordon Johncock and Lloyd Ruby, and all these guys that came out of the USAC system in the 60s. Nobody, once they went to the rear engine cars, that pipeline dried up. If you look at it, they're for a number of reasons, but they're just USAC racing didn't produce any stars in the 70s or the 80s. You can say, all right, there was Poncho Carter and he won a race or two. It just, it didn't happen. That This disconnect occurred 40, 50 years ago now. And, and it wasn't until Jeff Gordon uh, graduated from USAC racing into NASCAR as like this overnight phenomenon from USAC in the early 90s. All of a sudden, people realized that, hey, wait a minute, this USAC racing, their tube, tube frame front engine cars going around on oval tracks. All of a sudden, they realized that this was a natural pipeline for NASCAR that had zero relevance whatsoever to modern IndyCar racing. And no matter what, you know, Tony George, maybe he was 10 years too late trying to, to restart that connection. But the bottom line is that ship sailed decades ago. And 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 so for Tony George to come out and say, well, we want American short track drivers. I mean, that's that's great. That's that's a worthy goal. But unfortunately, starting a race series to go into competition with cart wasn't the way to go about it. If Tony George has started his vision racing team and just sponsored a bunch of sprint car guys into the cart series, maybe that would have been a more effective alternative. But as it was, he chose to drop a nuclear bomb. So, so was this Tony George's kind of? Uh, you mentioning you're mentioning NASCAR and you're mentioning Jeff Gordon. It's interesting because he's he's hard. He's kind of a a, a side uh, 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 topic, I guess, to all this. But but he's probably in, indicative of something here, right? I guess at least in. Well, he started a tidal wave. Jeff Gordon went to NASCAR. He was instantly successful, and all of a sudden you had Ryan Newman and Dave Blaney and Tony Stewart. I mean, Tony Stewart, to his credit, he he was a Hoosier kid. He wanted to race Indy cars, and because of the IRL, he is the one poster boy success story of of the IRL putting a short track guy in an IndyCar guy and and having him show success but it didn't lead to him having an, a long IndyCar career it, it didn't lead to him winning the Indy 500 three times and and you know driving IndyCars for 15 or 20 years he went to NASCAR as soon as he won an IndyCar an IRL championship so so what I'm what I'm getting here getting at though I guess is that this is almost this is just as am I right in in sort of putting this out there that maybe in George's mind that this is this is almost like a a battle maybe a looming battle between that of NASCAR and that of what was and could be quote unquote IndyCar racing I mean it almost feels like that this was part of a a, a, a split maybe for the attention of the of the American racing enthusiast let's be clear NASCAR was a dictatorship by Bill France and Bill France jr from day one was it's <laughs> much less it's much less so much now. less now of course but still uh, right but I, certainly I certainly up up until the brian france era it was one man made the decisions and tony george had bill france jr telling him that in one ear he had bernie ecclestone another example of a guy who's the one guy that is the the be all and end all decision maker he had these two guys telling him you need to take control of this they need you you don't need them and ultimately everybody found out that they do need each other that's interesting. So this is almost an emulation, perhaps, by him to take this and maybe either return it to its roots or, or sort of uh, lay down the law, so to speak. I, but th it also seems, though, to me that by even sort of centralizing the, the thought process and leveraging 
the proverbial crown jewel of IMS and in and the and the 500, the Indianapolis 500. That that feels like a leverage play, right? It's like, hey, guess what, guys? You can't do this without the Indy 500 as part of the as the crown jewel, right? Look, and here's here's the crux of it. I mean, he had a lot of worthy goal, goals, American drivers, oval tracks, and all that. And yes, he did leverage the Indy 500, but the bottom line is that he devalued the Indy 500 by leveraging it the way he did. He could have gone about trying to gain greater control or bigger voice in IndyCar racing in many different ways other than starting a competing series against the CART IndyCar series at a time when IndyCar racing was at historic high levels of success in every measure. Okay, so let's let's talk then more specifically about the early 90s and and the the the, the literal split. I mean, we were talking about the fissures that sort of led up to this sort of major uh, issue, but you, you're describing a sport that at by this time, the late 80s, was really gaining steam, getting a lot of attraction. There's this cable television thing, you know, that, that got fed with more and more uh, events and stuff. And it seems like it was a pie that was growing for all concerned. Um, but sort of maybe get maybe we can get to a little of the granulars of to sort of like what truly transpired. You're mentioning it, this IndyCar, this IRL sort of offshoot and stuff, but uh, maybe you can kind of sort of set the table for kind of what really happens in in 92 specifically um, uh, uh, with this truly out in the open split. Well, in November of 91, Tony George went to a card owners meeting and he made a proposal to essentially take over the company. And they more or less laughed in his face. Um, he got back on the airplane to go home. He MF'd them the whole way and said, I'll show those guys. And it took until March of 94. But in March of 94, he announced that he was going to form a new series of IndyCar races based around the Indianapolis 500. And nobody took him seriously. And he kept making announcements. They were kind of vague and oblique. And he held his ground and just kept saying, look, I'm going to start a new series. It's going to start in 1996. In July of 95, he announced that three quarters of the starting spots for every one of his IRL races, including the Indy 500, would be reserved for IRL points leaders. And that was a message that if the cart teams didn't run the first IRL race or the first two IRL races of 1996, they would be effectively shooting for eight eligible positions in an Indy 500 starting field. And given the options that were being presented to them, the cart team owners chose not to participate in the 1996 Indianapolis 500. At the time, Roger Penske owned Michigan Speedway. They leased Michigan Speedway from him and they staged a race called the US 500 on May 29th, 1996 in direct competition with the Indy 500. All right, let's talk about that for a second, because this is obviously the, the height of lunacy, right? I mean, in retrospect, right? And and big boys and their toys, right? So how do, um, I don't even remember how this went down on television and stuff that, that day and, and how this was playing out. By the way, the, all the way in the background, of course, is the World 600, too, on NASCAR's circuit, too. So much if, later you're race, if you're, say again, much later in the day. Much later in the day, but but if you're a race fan, right? And, and then again, there's also there's I think there's also a Formula One event usually very early, the Monaco, right? Uh, usually many years, yes. Right. So, but I guess for a race fan, this is like oh boy, this is like the 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 ultimate, uh, uh, you know, uh, a full house, I guess. But but I, I'm really curious about how these two 
IndyCar, let's call it, and I know that's not the official term per se in this case, but you had two directly competing races siphoning off the talent into what, two mediocre events on the same day now? Well, 90% of the talent was on the cart side uh, based on the statistics. Um, in the 1996 Indy 500, there were a total of six IndyCar race wins on the grid, and three of them were achieved by R. Leyendijk. Uh In comparison, the grid for the U.S. 500 had 131 IndyCar race wins. So it was portrayed as at Michigan for cart, they had the cars and stars, and at the Indy 500, it was portrayed as a bunch of low-budget rubes um, who had no business being there. And what transpired was the Indy 500 started at its traditional time of 11 a.m., which they'd go back to those days. And they ran a reasonable facsimile of the Indy 500. There is nothing else like it, the start of the Indianapolis 500. Today is the 80th running of the great race, and 33 cars will fly over the same bricks at the start-finish line that were laid here for the first race in 1911. It was a huge event then. It's even bigger today, the largest single-day sporting event in the world. Indy is the premier race in the sport of oval track racing, a dynamic mix of technology, skill, and danger. Flying over those historic bricks, drivers have become the heroes of American racing. Ray Haroon won that first race. Louis Meyer became the first three-time winner. A.J. Boyd, the first to win four times. Rick Mears equaled that record. For Mario Andretti, his 1969 victory would be his only one at Indianapolis. The Unsers, Bobby, Al Sr., and Little Al have combined for nine victories in the last 28 years. But this race will be run in large part by a new breed of performer, the drivers of the Indy Racing League. Buzz Calkins, young, sharp. He raced against his father to develop his skills. He won the RL's first race back in January on the Walt Disney World Circuit. Tony Stewart, a three-division USAC Oval champion, faces tremendous pressure today. As an Indy rookie, he will start on the pole after his teammate, Scott Brayton, was fatally injured last week in practice. This man is the fastest in Speedway history. Murray Landyke qualified at nearly 237 miles an hour. He is the only driver in today's race to have won the 500. Today's winner may be unfamiliar to you now, but tomorrow his name will be in headlines in every newspaper in America. Like others before him, he will drink cold milk from a bottle in Victory Lane. His likeness will go on the famous Fort Warner Trophy, and he will join Haroon, Floyd, Mears, the Unzers, and Mario Andretti as a champion of the Indianapolis 500. It had last year's cars. Uh, it did not have star drivers. Um, they weren't stars then, they're not stars now. Um, but they ran a reasonable facsimile, the Indy 500, and a guy called Buddy Lazier won. And Buddy Lazier had competed in probably 100 kart races, and he'd never qualified higher than 18th, and he'd never finished higher than 7th. And he was the winner of the 1996 Indy 500. And as the 1996 Indy 500 was drawing to a close, they started, or they tried to start, I should say, the U.S. 500, as it was called at Michigan. And they hyped it up again. It was the cars and the stars and the experience and the talent and the sponsors and the best of everything. And they had a 10-car car wreck as they took the green flag. 
and they looked like idiots. The ceremonial pace cars have pulled off on this all-important occasion. We are ready for the traditional three-wide start at the controls of the pace car. Actor racing driver Paul Newman, eminently qualified to pace the field for this important race. So much at stake. A crowd of over 120,000 on hand and all of the familiar teams of IndyCar racing. Each individual in this great racing plant has their own reason for being here, but make no mistake, history will be made here today at Michigan. The field, perhaps the most qualified in IndyCar history, world championships in both Formula One cars and sports cars. Seven IndyCar titles, 131 total IndyCar victories between them. Jimmy Vassar, who has won three of the first five races of the season and is the points leader coming into this race, will bring the field up to speed. And we have a crash in turn four. A crash approaching the green flag. And many, many cars are involved. Well, something has obviously gone wrong and cold tires maybe that might be the possibility a half shaft braking it looked like uh, one of the cars went directly 90 degrees to the right so we're not quite sure and uh, we got quite a collision here on our hands at least nine cars involved at least nine cars stationary right now no idea how many may be damaged but still circulating i see eddie lawson's car going by missing half of its rear wing you see the drivers climbing out of their cars there is jimmy vassar the pole sitter As he makes his way away, we have a red flag on the racetrack. Obviously, this cannot continue. We have a red flag, all stop, and we'll start all over again. Let's get down to Jan Bikas in the pit lane. Here they were portraying themselves as being, you know, the best of the best and the most experienced and the most professionals, and they just, they just blew it. And why do you why do you think? I mean, I didn't. I, I really need to go back on and look purpose, at the Tim. You know, they had an accident. <laughs> yeah, had a bad. They picked a bad time to have a racing accident. Right. Period. Interesting. Well, do you remember the television situation? I'm guessing ABC was still. I don't because I was sitting in the press box at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway covering the Indy 500. But what I can remember is sitting there and word starting, started coming through that they'd wrecked at the start at Michigan. And I remember just thinking, oh, what a disaster. So I don't know. I, you know, for one thing, it's 25 years ago and I was focused on doing my job at the time. So I'm not, I, I can tell you that the TV rating dropped from an 8.4 to a 6.6 .6 between 1995 and 1996. But I can't tell you you know, oh, I remember watching the broadcast because I didn't. And, and the idea then was to make the, shall we call it, newly reconstituted 500 as the uh, the basis, the lever. It was an opportunity for young young right. drivers. But an to, entire league, though, based off of that, the IRL, the Indy Racing League. Yeah, I mean, it's if you want to get down to it, it was a fraud. They, they said they had a bunch of goals and they really, they had a different agenda. Well, so describe to me then not only the 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 aftermath of that directly competitive head-to-head, -head, I guess debacle and 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 I guess uh, uh, you know winnowing of uh, you know separating talent and and just confusing people, especially the casual fans. Um, what happens in the next couple of years in terms of? Do I dare call it head-to-head -head competition? Because it's clear that the IRL is is a mere shadow of what cart was prior um but but in the in the mind of the average viewer right there are two competing leagues kind of in the same sport so to speak well the first thing that happened was is cart 
since 1992 has their corporate name was IndyCar Inc. And that added to the confusion because they were leasing the name from the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and they were trying to get rid of a connotation to go-karts or grocery carts. Sure. So – in 1996, when the when the split broke out, the Speedway revoked CART's license to use the word IndyCar. And so CART reverted to the term Champ Car, which had been used in the 60s before the all-pavement IndyCar era of the 70s. But in their settlement, the IRL was not allowed to use the name IndyCar either. So from 1997 to 2002, you had Champ Car versus the IRL, and nothing was technically an IndyCar, even though everything was an IndyCar, if, if you kind of can follow that. The other big storyline was that CART kind of stabilized itself and the teams, you know, they maintained their sponsors and they maintained their television viewership for the most part. And they maintained almost everything through the end of the 90s. The IRL had a terrible time through the rest of the 90s. They had engine problems. They had chassis problems. They crashed a lot of cars and hurt a lot of drivers. But they somehow, CART should have been able to to put them under, but they didn't. And what it always comes back to is, is the lure and the power of the Indy 500. And, uh, you know, to a lot of people, it shouldn't have been strong enough to justify the IRL surviving as long as it did, but it did. So the Indy and the IRL were, was largely still populated by, I, I guess the only thing I the only, uh, parallel I could sort of draw would be, and I, it's maybe a little overwrought, but it's almost like scab drivers, right, for against a union in some respects, right? No, that's, that's correct. There was one one team. It was A.J. Foyt's team was really the only cart team that stayed. And, and A.J. Foyt was back in the original split. He was on the USAC side. So he's always been anti-cart in his own way. But, yeah, I mean, it was it was a bunch of no-name teams and no-name drivers, and it really looked like a shoddy affair for the first couple or three years. And then in 2000, Chip Ganassi Racing – was the first cart team to come back and it all started to turn from there. All right. So, so why, why set, set the tone for why this sort of comeback and the eventual, you know, you mentioned. Chip Massey told me for my book, we looked like two bald guys fighting over a comb. <laughs> um, you know, the bottom line is, is that Chip was one of the guys out there that had a real sponsor in target target stores. And he was, he saw that it was five years in and there was no sign of the split being solved. So he just said, screw it. I'm going back. And he did. And he won. And, and again, that's, be, so who, who sort of, it, it, there's a little bit more decline to come until that sort of, uh, full, I guess, uh, recombination sort of occurs, right? And even you mentioned it earlier, it still has taken a good decade plus since that, but in the early aughts, right? Um, you know, carts seem to be doubling down in terms of, of, of uh, their schedules, their ambitions. Um, was it, it, was it trying to drive IRL just sort of into the ground and, or was it sort of designed to kind of bring them back, so to speak, to the negotiating? What was the dynamic there to sort of bring these, if everybody's starting to recognize that this is hurting both sides, what's sort of the olive branch? Is it literally just one group? Like you're mentioning, going back and saying all's forgiven and maybe others will follow us too? I don't think it happens that easily, right? Well, all right. Tony George got to the point by the end of two, 2003 where he'd probably spent half a billion dollars of his family fortune creating, sustaining the Speedway and the IRL, not creating the Speedway, but 
enhancing the speedway and creating the IRL and, and sustaining the IRL, propping up a lot of the teams. So he, he, you know, I don't know if it was goal, but cart went bankrupt at the end of 2003, but there were a couple guys, Jerry Forsyth and Kevin Kalkoven who cared enough to outbid Tony George for the ashes of cart. And they kept operating a competing series for another four years and it was just a matter of who was going to outspend each other. I think Tony got tired of spending money. He was getting under a lot of pressure from his sisters about the amount of money that he had spent on whatever he, he spent it on. Um, I don't know what you want to call it. I mean, it, it seems it all seems pretty unnecessary in hindsight. But the bottom line is, is that uh, Tony George and, and Forsyth and Cal Coven just got tired of spending their own money. And they realized that they were going to continue to be throwing money down a black hole until they tried to, to work together and, uh, and salvage something out of the disaster that the community collectively had created. But, but it seems like the, that at least uh, George was, was pushing on, that 500 and and leveraging that into television contracts and that kind of stuff where cart seemed to be fumbling a bit when it came to uh similar top tier coverage i mean it looks like cart was like on speed channel you know for cable and they were buying time on cbs and stuff i mean it just seems to me that that both sides were it seems like a like a i wouldn't call it a heavyweight fight but two sort of punch drunk fighters kind of you know going into later rounds and it's kind of like nobody really nobody's winning and nobody's going to come out ahead unless something unless somebody kind of rings the bell and maybe you know calls calls them back to both corners well they were both on abc espn um up until the early 2000s and i mean the bottom line is is that abc espn always valued their relationship with the indianapolis motor speedway and the indy 500 more than they did over on cart and cart's relationship with television deteriorated badly in the late 90s. Um, the CART CEO, Andrew Craig, was kind of forced out in 2000. And I mean, that's honestly when the bottom started falling out for them because he did a good job of keeping everybody unified and motivated and managing the company. And from 2000 onward, it was a disaster for CART. And obviously they lasted less than four years before they went into bankruptcy. Um, you know, it's... Um, in hindsight, you can, you in hindsight it. there were, there were two groups that tried to outspend each other and they got tired of spending money. So, uh, how does, how does it get rectified then as the, as the aughts play out? Um, there, there was a recombination, if you will. Um, maybe you can kind of describe sort of ha how that sort of came about and, and frankly, how the, the years sort of played out afterwards, because you hinted at it at the beginning of our conversation, it really hasn't fully sort of healed until very recently. Um, how do we get here uh, in the midst of that early aughts kind of, hey, we need to do something to kind of maybe make things right again? Well, everybody realized how stupid it was and everybody realized, I mean, all you had to do is look at the the lack of people going to IRL races and even the decline of some of the, the champ car races of the, as they were known at the time, like Long Beach. I mean, the, the decline was there for all to see. And by 2006, 2007, you had two, you, you made the heavyweight fighter, you know, uh, comparison. 
you had these two devalued 18 car series that really weren't going anywhere. And everyone in the community understood that the fighting and the prolonging of the conflict was stupid and unnecessary. But the one common denominator from the 90s onward is that every time there was some type of negotiation and an apparent, you know, inroads to getting back together, Tony George was always the guy that walked away. And finally, throughout 2006, 2007, a group of people, uh, you know, to a lesser extent, Al Spire of Firestone was involved, Robert Clark of Honda was involved. Ultimately, it came down to Mario Andretti and Paul Newman, the actor, that got Kevin Kalkoven and Tony George to sit down at the table long enough. Kalkoven and Tony enjoyed each other's companies. They're, they're, they, they enjoy a night out. They enjoy a glass of wine and socializing. And, and they, they made a connection socially before they were able, and it, and it took even after that, it took them two years to, to bring together a business deal, but it was mainly driven by Mario Andretti. And he, you know, he said to me at one point, he says, I got them together to the altar several times. I just can't get them to say I do. And he, he finally did. And what it took and, and uh, you know, he explains this in kind of a perspective at the back of my book was he had to get Cal Coven to agree to let Tony George be the leader of it. And, you know, there was certainly within the cart side of the industry, there's there's always been kind of an anti-Tony George sentiment. And, and that was big. You know, they they said, let's get together. We're going to have Tony be the front man. He's going to be the leader. And Mario told me that he's never seen a guy sell himself the way Tony George did to, to you know, to be the man, to put himself in the position. And whether it was pressure from his family or whether he just felt like he'd won the war and didn't have anything else to accomplish, uh, the bottom line is a little more than two years after the split ended in February 2008, uh, by the summer of 2010, Tony George was out and it's never really been, you know, Tony doesn't do interviews. It's never really been properly explained. Uh, essentially the family wanted him to step down from his roles with the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and Holman and company and focus on the IRL because they felt that the Holman business as a whole, they needed him to focus on that. And he chose not to continue as the leader of the IRL. And it's a mystery from everybody to, for, you know, from Mario to Kevin Kalkoven to whoever, uh, Tony's a private guy. He's not going to talk about it. Um, but you know, this happened in 2010 and there really hasn't been a, there's, there's been a void in leadership since then. And I started writing my book in 2017 and I got to a point of, well, how am I going to end this thing? And, and I felt really fortunate. And I think the entire IndyCar community should feel really fortunate that at the end of 2019, Roger Penske out of the blue and announced his agreement to acquire Holman and company and with it, the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and the IndyCar series. And um, it's it, it was a remarkable bit of closure that nobody saw coming. Yeah, it's interesting because you're mentioning February 2008. I mean, March 20, well, actually, I think it was April 20th, right? 2008 when this, um, no, sorry. I, I think it was in March, right? Was this first, if you will, merged event? I put it in quotes, right? Um, Homestead in March of 08. Right. So um, 
the Gainsco Auto Insurance Indy 300, for those of you paying attention out there. So, but it's taken since almost that sort of, I guess, that mark on the bedpost until now to kind of maybe close and maybe harmonize once again, uh, you know, this decades long distraction, I guess that, so I guess the question really in there is now that that's sort of been achieved and that sort of, uh, that, uh, that purchase has happened and, and somebody like a Roger Penske in the mix, what do you think from your perspective, which is probably unique, what do you think happens now? going forward. Uh, you know, we've seen a decline in NASCAR, for example. Um, I, I'm just wondering where and what sort of comes from the sort of now next chapter in this story from your perspective. What, what do you think is going to happen? Well, IndyCar's big fallout occurred 20 years ago. Um, whether that's a good or a bad thing, they got their downsizing out of the way. They lost their audience. They lost their sponsor base. They lost a lot of stuff. And they were forced to downsize. They were forced to cut costs for competitors. They were forced to trim fat. And they bottomed out. And, you know, really since the since the unification in 08, they've been slowly rebuilding or holding steady at least. Whereas if you look at Formula One racing or NASCAR racing in that period, NASCAR peaked in 2005, 2006, and it's been on a steady decline since then. And they're kind of grasping for straws at what to do. By, you know, they're adding dirt, dirt races and road courses and new cars with single lug wheels and sequential gearboxes and all kinds of things that NASCAR fans are, are offended by. So IndyCar racing, you know, it, it, it got its teething or its troubles or its downsizing out of the way 10 to 20 years ago. But... I just I don't know what they do from here because for one thing they've lost they have zero media presence they have zero impact in in the mainstream media and their television numbers are just disastrous um the Indy 500 last year dropped from a 3.4 to a 2.2 it was some record low uh by far I mean it was like 30% lower than than the previous record low and their numbers this year have been awful. They're getting, you know, three, four, five hundred thousand viewers per race. And and whether it's right or wrong, and you can argue the merits of the Nielsen system and how reliable it actually is, but the bottom line is is that a series or any sports commercial value uh, is based on its television ratings and IndyCars is they're in the toilet. And they've always the big weakness, and it's ironic given the reason they were formed, because they wanted to have greater control over television and, and their commercial aspects, but they've never had a, a decent or representative television rights deal. From the very start, they started out with time buys on NBC. There's been times since then that they've had time buys, and even when they've had network deals with ESPN or ABC or NBC like they have now, they're absolute pennies on the dollar compared to what NASCAR's getting. I mean, NASCAR's current television package combined with Fox and NBC is in the order of $8 billion. And IndyCar's last 10-year television package with Versus to carry two-thirds of their races, and this was the cable part, and that's NBC Sports Network now. But it was reported as $67 million with an M, not a B, over 10 years. So what IndyCar has traditionally received in television revenue is chump change and and I think the biggest key for them is, is how are they going to negotiate this shift that we're in right now between uh, 
free to air to cable television and now to the whole notion of streaming. And if you look at the numbers that they put out, you know, it's like, well, we got 388,000 viewers, plus we had 12,000 on the internet. Yeah, uh, That's not going to move anybody's needle. Well, look, I, and I'm sure NASCAR is absolutely not going to be in the same position for renegotiation of that, that kind of rate, too. I mean, you mentioned the peak. I mean, that was a... You would think that their numbers are going to drop substantially uh, okay. when they come up for renegotiation. Well, so uh, I guess the question in there, though, is do you think that the the IndyCar f uh, form of racing, uh, aside from the spectacle that still is, I guess, uh, you know, to a, to a major extent, although, you know, obviously it's, it's lost luster because of what we've discussed over the last hour. Um, do you think it, it's got a, a, another sort of circuit-centric future beyond sort of, I guess, its current, let's call it niche status now, um, back to maybe where it was prior, or is that sort of a period of time that's sort of come and gone and maybe with some self-shooting in foot over uh, during that process. Well, Bobby Rahal once called me Dr. Doom, and I don't want to revert to that, but I just can't see any way that, that it's going to uh, get to any sort of mainstream popularity that it enjoyed in the 60s or 70s or 80s. It just, um, if you look at, at, at the decline in the Indy 500's numbers, and, and honestly, it's still the only event that really matters after all these years and after all the struggles to try to build the rest of the series. The 500's still king. It's still, it's it, it towers so far over everything else that it's, you know, it's not proportionate and honestly not healthy. Um, I think they've got a real tough road ahead of them to, to bounce back to... Um, to anywhere near where they were 20, 30 years ago. You know, having said that, Roger Penske brings credibility that I don't think that they've had um, for decades, uh, just in terms of what the Penske court brings to the business world. But the other thing that you have to look at in that equation is, is that Roger's 84 years old now, and he's not going to live forever. And um, I don't, you know, I think the secession plan for Penske racing with Tim Sindrick is pretty obvious for all to see. And I would tend to think that Roger Penske's son, Greg, is in line to take over certainly the, the Indianapolis and the car aspects of, of Roger's business. But whether Greg has the energy and the passion and the desire that Roger has to, um, devote to the Indy 500. I mean, let's face it, Roger Penske's, he's given a lot of his life to that place. He started attending the race in 1951. He's won it 18 times as a team owner. It's, there's nobody else that, that could have made an effort. Well, that had the ability to, to acquire the speedway, um, who had the passion for it. And then I think that's important because that's, what's going to drive it. Um, as long as it's under Penske ownership, I think it's Roger's personal goal to bring it back as far as he can. All right. Our last question, and I don't want to sort of put you on the spot, but what what, what of just racing generally? I mean, we're, we're hinting at, at NASCAR's uh, decline or certainly from its certainly its peak uh, a decade or two earlier. Um, we're mentioning, obviously, this, this sorry story of, of, of the split and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, there are there are green shoots, though. I, I, I'm fascinated by what uh, Tony Stewart's trying to do with um, PRX, uh, this, uh, sorry, S, S, excuse me, SRX. I have to get my acronyms. Superstar racing experience, right? Short track stuff. Um, 
at starting up relatively soon. I, what do you think the future of racing generally is what, what, and motorsports and stuff? If it's not NASCAR, that's on a decline. If it's not IndyCar, is it Formula One? Does that sort of still keep it sort of, uh, or you know, Grand Prix type stuff, uh, sort of the highest end? Um, does it splinter into lots of different sort of niches? Uh, do, we, do we ever see anything sort of grand scale anymore uh, that approaches what an Indy 500 and all it represents and or what NASCAR used to be decades ago? Or are we kind of just adrift? Well, I, I don't want to be pessimistic, but you hear a lot of talk about how people in general don't have a connection with cars anymore. Um, and I know that. I mean, the car I drive is 10 years old, but I wouldn't think of trying to change the oil or the spark plugs in it um, like I would have done with my old you know, 73 Volvo back in the day. People don't have a personal connection with cars anymore. Um, and that's contributed to kind of a decline in car culture. And that in itself contributes to a decline in interest in racing because you, you have to, I think, to be interested in racing, you've got to be interested in cars. Yeah, it's a relatability you're talking about that that doesn't exist or is harder to make connections with. Well, and the other thing is, is that just relevance, the Car manufacturers for street cars right now, whether they like it or not, they're being forced to transform to electric cars. Uh, it's happening all over the world. Um, I have serious questions whether any country is capable of putting together the infrastructure in a timely manner for an electric car society, but that's probably not a question for my lifetime. But the, the manufacturers to justify racing, and, and let's face it, the manufacturers, they they're the financial backbone of racing when you get down to it. They have to have justification to participate in racing. And so right now, you know, Formula One kind of started it with whatever hybrids they have uh, in their cars. Le Mans sports car racing has had it. I think the series, and I don't want to sound like a shill here just because I'm, I'm doing some coverage there these days, but I think the series that's really poised for a boom is IMSA sports car racing. Um, you've got new regulations coming in in 2023 that are going to add a hybrid element to the Daytona prototype international cars. And more importantly, what that's going to do is it's going to open a category for IMSA competitors to compete at the 24 hours of Le Mans or other WEC sports car races. There's been great interest in this LMDH category already with Porsche, Audi, Acura, I believe Cadillac committing to it. And so I think that sports car racing honestly has the best chance of combining all of this, you know, the, the, the relevance to modern cars with hybrid technology and such, as well as um, just a connection to cars on the street. I mean, if you go to a sports car race, you see Corvettes and Porsche 911s in addition to the prototypes out there. So I think for, for the, the remaining group of car enthusiasts, I think sports car racing is a, you know, kind of a, a good path to the future. And I think IndyCar racing, what they have to do if, if they're going to want to remain relevant and grow is, is they're going to have to do some form of guerrilla marketing and they're going to have to be, and they're, they're trying to get toward more powerful and faster cars, but they're going to have to get back to where they were in the 70s or in the 90s, where the cars were beasts that had 900 or 1,000 horsepowers and they were difficult to drive and they were compared with the likes of the Porsche 917 Can-Am cars. And I think that, um, you know, they've they've maybe... Um, demasculated is the wrong word, but they've certainly taken some of the bite out of IndyCar racing in, in recent years. And um, 
it's it's unrealistic to expect that you're going to put technical innovation back into it with different engines or competing manufacturers. So if you're going to have one spec car out there, it's got to be the biggest and the baddest and the fastest. And, and hopefully they can work back toward that and, you know, get back to the days in Indianapolis where one of the thrills was, again, like I said earlier, hearing, uh, I don't know how Dave Calabro would say it's a new track record, but uh, but yeah, get back to those days where it was a crucible for speed and innovation. I do not consider myself the uh, deepest and geekiest of race fans, uh, for sure, uh, but I am fascinated by it. Uh, and uh, this uh, episode has really kind of uh, opened up a Pandora's box for yours truly, and hopefully for yourselves as well. Uh, and there's lots in the realm of racing, a lot of great events and, and leagues and approaches and, and th that are not with us anymore or a part of uh, this fabric of auto racing in this country. Uh, and internationally for that matter. And uh, I for sure will not be able to watch the Indy 500 the same, uh, having gone through this conversation. And I highly encourage the book uh, that uh, is uh, uh, the sort of deeper story of this. And it's fascinating. Uh, and I would argue many more uh, uh, conversations to be had uh, on this particular branch of auto racing, but others to come too. Indy Split, again, is the name of the book, The Big Money Battle That Nearly Destroyed Indy Racing. It is published by Octane Press, and a couple of ways you can get it, uh, and I encourage you to get it post-haste. Uh, you can go to octanepress.com and use the promo code INDY20, INDY, I-N-D-Y, the number 20, INDY20, uh, at checkout for a nice little discount. Uh, you can also go to our website at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode, number 216, with John Oribitz, and uh, you will be uh, 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 whisked away via link to uh, the Amazon uh, website where you will get it, uh, I believe, in Kindle form. You can get it uh, next day delivered, all that, all the goodness that comes with Prime if you're a subscriber to the Prime service. And of course, we get a couple of shekels of referral love. We appreciate that. Uh, however you get it, by all means, get it. And again, Indie Split, it's a great, fascinating and detailed uh, uh, assessment of, of the split uh, and hopefully the um, recombination that potentially maybe saves uh, the future of uh, open wheel racing and indie cars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you can follow uh, John uh, at his website at johnoriovitz.com. Uh, and Oriovitz is spelled or, uh, excuse me, O-R-E-O, -E Oreo, as in the cookie, V-I-C-Z, johnoriovitz.com. Uh, you can also follow John uh, on Twitter at IndieOreo. Indy, I-N-D-Y, Oreo, O-R-E-O, Indy Oreo on, uh, on Twitter. Um, you can follow us, of course, on various forms of social media. You can follow us on Twitter if you'd like, at Good Seats Still. You'll find us on Instagram at Good Seats Still Available. You'll find us on uh, Facebook at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, and again, our website, of course, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. You'll find all kinds of good things there, including every single stinking episode. Uh, of this show, both past, present, and future. Uh, but uh, of course, if you're not subscribing to us or following us in podcast land, what's stopping you from doing that? Why don't you subscribe or, or follow or do whatever it is? Just say yes and uh, ensure that you don't miss a uh, an episode uh, in the future. Uh, and uh, wherever you can, uh, once you do that, uh, please indeed uh, rate and review us, hopefully uh, favorably, five stars and and 100% and all that kind of stuff. We appreciate that. That helps 
the various algorithms out there uh, find other people like you who may enjoy the proceedings each and every week. Uh, let's see. You can send us email directly at uh, hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Please, indeed, uh, keep those proverbial electronic letters and cards coming. We appreciate those. Uh, let's see. What else? How about uh, our email newsletter that we send out uh, a couple of hours or a couple of days, depending on how uh, industrious we are each week uh, before each new episode? Uh, you can find that link somewhere on our website. Uh, and let's see what else. Thank you kindly, of course, to our good pal, Jerry Payne. Jerry Payne Audio Excellence. Without his assistance each and every week, we could not do this show. That is for sure. Uh, all right, more cool stuff coming at you in the weeks ahead. Lots of great guests, lots of great topics. Uh, and uh, thanks once again, as always, for listening. Enjoy the racing this coming weekend, everybody. And uh, until next week, we will see you down the road. Take care. The 500, the 500, the greatest race in the world. From the opening ball till the race is done. It's thrill after thrill after thrill. The 500, the 500, the biggest and best of them all. And until that checkered flag's unfurled, it's the greatest race in the world. The night before, the crowd shall roar. Down the hard stretch, hear them call Into the northeast land